Hello, church family. Thank you for joining us for another message from Res Life Holland. We hope this sermon encourages you in your walk with Jesus and empowers you to live the life God has for you. Now sit back and enjoy today's message. I want to talk about something today that likely affects us. Not that this would necessarily be my source for most information, but Teen Vogue did a study and they said 99.3% of people suffer from insecurity. 99.3. Now, I don't know if their audience is a little bit higher than the rest of us, but the point is that insecurity is a very common issue. Now, what people are insecure about varies, but most of us uh, are challenged in, in some area to feel adequate. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says this, but you are a chosen people. Say, I am chosen by God. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. Say it with me. I am God's special possession. That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. As I, I shared last week, uh, I dropped my son off at college. And I am so excited for him. He is doing great. And I, I joined this Facebook group of parents from that college. And I have been, uh, what's the word? I guess almost surprised, I was going to say shocked, but amused to see how many different parents are on there talking about how disconnected, how um, miserable many of their students felt. And I got to thinking about, you know, it may be magnified for people who are freshmen in college, but that's not a freshman college only thing. So many people wonder, do I have what it takes to do what I need to do? Can I do it? And the answer is, you have what it takes because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. You and I have what it takes. I love, I love what Moses, you guys have heard me say, it's one of my favorite verses in the Bible, is when Moses was called by God to go free the Israelites. Do you guys remember the burning bush story? And God says, go, stand before Pharaoh, say these things. And Moses' first response is, I don't think I can because I'm not a good speaker. He claimed that he couldn't. And God responds to him, who made your mouth? I want that like t-shirt. Who made your mouth? What, what he said is, you aren't the ultimate authority on what you can and cannot do. You are not the ultimate authority about what you can and cannot do. God, your maker, is the ultimate authority of what you can and cannot do. What you can accomplish. And he says, it is in your weakness that I am made strong. He loves to fill in the gap between what we believe we can do and what he's called us to do. This is what he loves to do. Dr. Tim Elmore, a very prolific author, written many books, um, some under his own name. He's also assisted with John Maxwell, who most of you probably heard of, writing many of his books. Very accomplished, very um, wise man. He said this about insecurity and, and the sources of it. He says, we all have an inner need for belonging. And when we don't have that sense of belonging, when we miss belonging, we will feel insecure. And some of the symptoms of insecurity, that lack of belonging, is an overcompensation, emotional highs and lows. He said we all have a need for worth, to recognize our, our value. 
when we don't recognize our value, we feel inferior. The symptom, a common symptom, is competition, comparison, self-doubt, and an insatiable desire for recognition. He said, we, we all have an inner need for competence, to, to feel competent. When we miss that, when we don't have it, we feel inadequate. And now some of the common symptoms are comparison with specific people and a defensive attitude. And we all are called, have a need for purpose. And when we don't feel that purpose, when we miss that purpose, we feel illegitimate. And a common symptom is a compulsive drive to a feeling of defeatism and depression. I want to look at six Bible cases of people who were struggling with insecurity, and we're going to look at what that looked like in their life and what God's perspective of it was. Are you guys ready? Matthew 20, verse 1 through 16, is uh, the parable of the vineyard. It says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for her vin- his vineyard. Now, when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing in the marketplace idle. And he said to them, you also go into the vineyard and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Again, he went out on the sixth day and on the or sixth and on the ninth hour and did likewise. And about the 11th hour, he went out and found others standing idle. And he said to them, why have you been standing idle all day? And they said to him, well, because no one has hired us. He said, you also go into the vineyard. And I will give you what is right. You will receive it. So when the evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to the steward, call all the laborers and give them their wages. Now, you and I hear the term denarius, and it's just some random, you know, a ruble or a peso or a dollar. A denarius actually meant a day's wage. That's what that term referred to. A denarius was a day's wage. So he went out and he found people in the morning and he said, would you work for a day's wage? A denarii? That was the equivalent of it. And they said, absolutely. So he hired them. And then he went out a couple hours later, found some people and said, would you work? Yeah. Well, I'll give you what's right, a fair day's wage. So all throughout the day, he kept hiring people And what we see here is at the end, and when those, it says, so when evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said, call the laborers and give them their wages, beginning with the last to the first. And when those that were hired at the 11th hour, they each received a denarius. So the people who were hired with only an hour left to work received a day's wage. And likewise, um, So it says, but when the first came, they supposed they would receive more. Remember the ones that had agreed specifically to a denarius at the beginning? And they likewise received a denarius. And when they had received it, they complained against the landowner saying, the last man worked only an hour and you made him equal to us who've borne the burden of the heat of the day. But he answered to one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go your way. I wish to give you this last man If I wish to give this last man the same as you, is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? Or is my eye evil because I am good? So the last will be first and the first will be last. For many are called, but few are chosen. It's interesting that these people were thrilled to be hired for a day's wage. And it didn't bother them until they compared themselves to somebody else. It was like, yeah, I'll do that. This is a fair wage for a fair day of work. But then when they saw somebody else who appeared to be doing less work and getting the same pay, suddenly they had issues. No raising hands, but how many of you have ever been feeling good about yourself until you like looked at social media and saw how somebody else was doing? It's like, oh, my car isn't that shiny. My house isn't that big. And we begin to to compare and say, 
Well, it's not fair. 2 Corinthians 10.12 says, For we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves, but they, measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves, here it is, are not wise. Comparison is a trap. It is a trap. You and I are called by God. How many of you recognize that? As we said before, who made your mouth? God. He has and he will equip you for what he has called you to do. What you need to accomplish God's purpose, he can and will provide. When we get bent out of shape, comparing ourselves, God looks down and says, why? Why are you focused on what someone else has? There will be disparity. There just will. And if we focus on that, we will undermine our ability to enjoy what God has given us. If we weren't looking at others, we'd have been happy. Those folks, when they were hired, they're like, great. I came out here hoping to get a job. Somebody found me right at the beginning of the day. They offered me a full day's wage for a full day's work. I'm good to go. Only when they thought someone else was faring better did they suddenly get all bent out of shape. John chapter 21, verse 20, verse 22 says this. And then Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following, who had also leaned on him on his breast at supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? So the, the disciples had caught on to Jesus' prophetic statements that someone from within their group was going to betray them. And so they're all worked up about who it's going to be. And he says, who is it? And Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, but Lord, what about this guy? So he points to, to one of the other, hey, is it him? And Jesus said to him, if I will that, that, that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. This is God's perspective. He said, I'm not comparing you against those other people. Don't you do it either. See, God talks about us as though we're part of the body. And he says, if you're an eye and you're upset that you're not an ear or a foot, you've missed the point. I'm not comparing the eye to the ear. They're called to different purposes. You and I, when we have God's perspective, we recognize I am created to be me and do what God has called me to do. I don't have to make as much as them. I don't have to make do as much as them. I don't have to look like them. I don't have to act like them. Whatever God has called that person to do, that's between them and God. It's my calling to accomplish what God has given me. Jesus said, what, what I will for them, what is that to you? All right. Comparison. Next, we're going to go to the story of Jacob. How many of you remember Jacob and Esau? They had quite a rivalry going. And Jacob felt inferior. He was the second born. And he kept trying to find ways to get what his brother had. To the point that he deceived him, he extorted him, he ended up having to flee, he left the country, and he didn't come back until when? Until he was really wealthy. It's like, okay. He compensated. He was, he, he was the second born. He saw himself as second fiddle. And he kept doing everything he could to catch up with and outdo his brother. And he left and didn't come back until he thought he had made it big enough. 
Some of the symptoms of compensating is when we scheme how to get ahead and to gain recognition. No raising of hands, but how many of you have ever plotted how to be recognized? We begin to depend on personal politics to advance ourselves. We fail to recognize God's blessing on us because our pursuit is for more. And we're tempted to stoop to dishonesty and deception to get results. When the, the results matter more than how we get them, we know that we've been caught in a trap of the enemy. This is God's perspective. God says in Galatians chapter 6, verse 3 through 5, he says, but let each one of you examine his own work, and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another, for each one should bear his own load. God has called each and every one of us to something special. We are his special possession. Remember what we read earlier? We are God's special possession. You are awesome in God's eyes. And he has something. Jonathan is going to do something that only Jonathan is going to do. You and I aren't called to do that. He is. And Charles and Michaela and Mary, we all have a calling, a purpose that God has given us that no one else has. And God says, I want you to focus on that. Don't worry about getting recognized by others. The Bible says, let another man's lips praise you and not your own. When we seek to, to push ourselves forward, what does the Bible say? That God resists the proud. Any of you guys want God resisting you? Not me. Not me. The message translation says it this way. It says, make careful exploration of who you are and the work you have been given. And then sink yourself into that. And don't be impressed with yourself. Don't compare yourself with others. Each of you must take responsibility for doing the creative best you can with your own life. Man. Next, competition. Now, competition can be good and competition can be bad. Healthy competition challenges both you and your competitor. It sharpens both of you. There's a, a, a famous book, um, How to Win Friends and Influence People, and they're talking about how to motivate, and they gave the example of, of a factory where they were struggling with productivity, and so they put the night shift and the day shift up against each other and just showed... You know, the day shift produced, you know, this many units. And so the night shift would see if how they could do, and, and they went up. And the result was that both the night shift and the day shift were producing better than they had before. The issue wasn't damaging. When it's healthy competition, both are better off in the end for having spent time together when you push yourselves in that way. Harmful competition is rooted in insecurity. It's driven by a feeling that I must be first and they must be below me. See, if you can compete and do your best and it's okay when you don't win, but you were inspired to do better because of your, your competitive nature, that's, that's okay. But when you have to win, and it feels as if, if you can't win, then nobody else can. 
This is definitely a part of human nature. How do I know? The first two people born had a problem with this. You remember what the Bible says? It says that Cain and Abel, (laughs) that Cain was jealous and upset because Abel's sacrifice was being accepted and his wasn't. Now, here's the thing. Cain wasn't following instructions. God had given them the instructions. He said, when you make a sacrifice, it needs to be of blood. Well, Abel was a farmer or a rancher. He had sheep. And so when he gave, he did that. What Cain was supposed to do was use, he was the, the grower, the farmer. He was supposed to purchase something with blood and sacrifice that. Instead, he's like, nope, I'm going to give a zucchini. He didn't follow God's instructions. But then he got upset when his efforts, although they were disobedient efforts, when those efforts didn't measure up, we know what happened. He killed his brother. What are the symptoms of unhealthy competitiveness? A tendency to be ungrateful, to be unteachable, to be jealous of whoever is getting recognition? When someone is recognized and you can't be happy for them? Because, well, I need some of that recognition. That should be me. If I can't have it, no one can. That was Cain's feeling. Well, if I'm not accepted, right, if I'm not getting recognition, well, then I don't want him to either. A tendency to be prideful. We recognize already God resists the pride. Proud, a tendency to be critical and judgmental. Even when there is no competition, you're looking for a way to be a winner. Tendency to be self-centered. I remember when, when I was in college, I used to have that, that saying. I would say to myself, when something went well, I'd be like, I win. Even when it wasn't a competition. It's like, I win. When something would go well. And I had to correct that. You know, like, when I declared myself the winner, I was kind of pointing out that everyone else wasn't. And it's okay to celebrate achievement, but not in a way that puts others down. This is God's perspective on competition. Psalms 37, 1 through 8. Do not fret because of evildoers, nor be envious of workers of iniquity. What is he saying? Don't look at them, their success, their achievements, whatever they're having, and then feel envy, feeling like, oh, that should be me. I want what they have. He says, don't feel envious of the workers of iniquity, for they shall soon be cut down like grass and wither as a green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. It says, put your trust in God and then do what he's called you to do. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. What is God's faithfulness? That's his track record of doing good and right. He says, feed on that. When we're feeling competitive, when we're feeling like we don't have, what does he say? He says, feed your heart and mind in your soul on God's track record of being faithful. Delight yourself also in the Lord. What does it look like to delight yourself? How many of you have a favorite food? Now, have you ever just like spent a little time thinking about it? Like, oh, I would really like one of those tacos. Good carne de asada with some salsa hecho in molcajete. That's made in where those stone bowls have the salsa made. And you just start to think about 
the thing that you enjoy and that you love. You are delighting yourself in that. You're just deriving delight as you ponder the thing that you love. God says, delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. What does that look like? Commit. Don't just go God's way, but commit your way to him. Premeditate, plan ahead to do what he has called for you. You commit in advance. A commit doesn't mean just do. Commit is, okay, that's when, when this happens, right? It's pre-planning our actions and our choices. He says, trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. What is he going to bring to pass? What's he going to bring to pass? Remember, this verse started out with don't be envious of evildoers. What he's saying is when you look at people who don't appear to be following God's path and you see the success or apparent success that they are, are experiencing, don't be envious. He says you have a path to success as well. First of all, don't define your success the same as theirs. Success is achieving God's purpose for your life. How many can agree with that? And God has and will equip you to accomplish whatever that is. He delights in equipping us for what he's called us to do. He says, he shall bring it to pass. When we've trusted in him, when we've committed to following him, he will bring it to pass. He shall bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. That envy is that feeling of injustice. Like it's not, it's not balanced, it's not right until I have what they have. That feeling of injustice. And God says, leave justice to me. He truly knows what is just and what is right. And when it comes, he says, it will shine like the noonday. Verse 7, rest. Rest in the Lord. Oh, we're talking about competition, and the word comes up, rest. Rest. It was interesting when I, I met one of my roommates, or, sorry, I met my son's roommate in college. He's a, he's a track runner. And he was talking about um, how he's trying to shave off a fraction of a second. Like, I think that he, and I don't remember for sure, but I think the 100-yard dash, he was like 10.02 or something like that. And he needs to get under 10 in order to be a guaranteed spot on there. So he's got to get that tiny little bit. And you know what he said? He said, what I'm having to learn is how to relax and rest while I run. I'm like, you're going to run the 100-yard dash in 10 seconds and you're resting while you do it? He said, yeah. When, when you clench up and you're... He says, you're, you're wasting energy resisting your own body's movements because everything is flexed. And He says, what I needed to learn was how to be relaxed so that only the parts of my body that are propelling me forward are working hard. Oh, that's interesting. Go faster by resting. He says, rest in the Lord. Wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way. Because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass, cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It only causes I want to read that verse again, 7 and 8. He says, rest in the Lord. He says, just chill, chill. Don't be focused on competing and beating 
He says, but wait patiently on him. Don't fret because of him and who is prospering. Don't get obsessed with who might be ahead or beside or right behind you. Because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass, especially when we get that idea that, well, they're not doing it God's way, and so how could it? He says, cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It only causes harm. When we choose to focus on what is happening and how, and how we compare and whether we compete and we're winning and they're winning and who's winning and by how much are they winning, and he says, that only causes harm. Our next Bible example we find in Luke 10.38. Jesus had come to visit the house of Mary and Martha. And it says, Now it happened as they went that they entered a certain village and a, and a certain woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she approached him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Therefore, tell her to help me. And Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needed, and Mary has chosen that good part, which will not be taken away from her. We're talking about the symptom of compulsion. That, that drive. She was distracted from the big picture, consumed by her own performance. She believed that her self-worth and the worth of others was attached to the importance of her role. Let me just say this for a second. God does not value you because of what you do. He values you because of who he made you to be. How many parents do we have in the room? I want you to remember back when your kids were less than a year old. Okay? The truth is, they had never done anything for you. Kept you awake gave you oodles of diapers to change. Did you love them? Did you love them? Oh, with a pure and unadulterated, intense love. They didn't have to do something. It's not like, well, if I don't take the garbage out, Dad won't love me. No. You love them just pure and simple. God said to Mary and to Martha, he says, you don't, you don't have to do. He says, I want you to be. Be with me. She experienced self-pity for her hard work. What she did, instead of it being a gift that she gave, it was a source of self-pity for her. Oh, look at all that I'm doing. And she grew weary because she attempted to do too much for the wrong reasons. Many of us may have that tendency towards perfectionism and we feel like we have to get everything right or else we don't have value. And God says, no. That's not where your value comes from. Not at all. God says that there is... Well, let's look here. 1 Corinthians 15, 10, and 11 says, But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. See, Paul is talking here and he says, even my efforts aren't my efforts. They're God's efforts. 
And whether it was me or one of the other preachers and teachers and people who came following God's call and exhorting you, we preached and you believed. Let's read that again. He says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. He says, it's God's grace that makes me what I am and who I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain, but I labored. He says, I worked more abundantly than they all. He says, I worked really hard. From his perspective, he worked the hardest. But then he says, but it wasn't me. He says, yet not I, but it was God's grace. He says, all that I did, that was God enabling me. God's grace, of the grace of God, which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preached and so you believed. He says, accomplishing God's purposes, that's what matters. It's not to focus on who got the recognition. Our next is condemnation. The judgmental attitude of ourselves or others resulting in self-pity. Elijah, in 1 Kings 18, went from one of his greatest victories. How many of you remember the story of when he went up on the top of the mountain and said, if God is real, then he will send fire down to consume this offering. And the prophets of Baal, and he says, if your God is real, then, then let him send down fire. And so the 400 prophets of Baal request that he would send, nothing happens. And Elijah says, pour water on it, make it difficult. I want, when this happens, I want you to know it was God. And he call, he prays, and God sends fire down that consumes the, al- the altar, which was stones. Just, it all gets burned up. He has the best day of his ministry. That is in First Kings chapter 18. In First Kings chapter 19, we find him in a cave, suicidal, afraid that Jezebel will kill him. The irony of it. She wants me dead. I'm so upset. I want to kill myself. We often think that if we just experience something big enough, all of our issues would go away and we would be secure because we accomplished something so big. Don't worry, I'm going to have a good self-image after I make six figures or after I own a house or after I achieve this milestone at work or this accomplishment there or this accomplishment there. Not true. No matter what you set up as your milestone achievement, the very next chapter, he's already dismayed. Why? Because his focus had switched to the threats that Jezebel was making against him. She sent out words. She said, because he won the worship off, however you want to call that. He won it. The, the prophets of Baal were, were killed, and Jezebel, who worshipped Baal, was so upset. She said, I will kill you just like those. those you're going to die. And he just, his focus just shifted. Symptoms are short-sighted perception of my circumstances. We have this idea that my circumstances are what is going to change my life. Hooey. If you're waiting around for better circumstances to make you a better person, you're waiting for the wrong things. It doesn't matter what circumstances come around. They don't change who you are. God made you 
who you are. You have value, you have worth before, during, and after whatever accomplishments you're going to make. And if your value is tied to those accomplishments, to those milestones, you'll, you'll always be a yo-yo. Up and down. Good days, bad days. Good days, bad days. When your focus is on that, because here's the thing, the truth. Your accomplishments aren't relevant every day. Even when you've accomplished the biggest ones. If you become a millionaire and your kids are mad at you, you don't just get to say, guess what? I have a million dollars. Quit being mad. You may have accomplished. It doesn't, it doesn't affect. Self-pity and loneliness as though I'm the only one to endure hardship. This is a lie of the enemy. He says, you are the only one who feels this way. You are the only one being treated this way. You're the only one enduring this. Only you. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tested or tempted beyond what you are able but with the temptation, he will also make a way of escape. Other symptoms would be complaining about unjust circumstances, a fear of your demise. What is fear? Fear is faith in reverse. Fear is the expectation of that which hasn't happened. And we've, we've talked about this before. But we tend to be afraid of multiple things. And we can be afraid, and I've used this example, but you can be afraid of dying of whatever, dying of COVID, dying in a car accident, dying in, in drowning, dying. In, now, you can be afraid of a bunch of different ways to die, right? How many times do you die? One. By absolute definition, the worst case scenario is only one of them could be true. But here you are wasting your emotional energy fearing 72 different ways to die. It can't happen. He says, God has given you, God promises, here, here, and we've, we've, we've said this before, but God promises to give you what you need to endure, what you will face. But mo many of us are spending emotional energy on the things we will never face. He says, what you will face, I will give you enough for that. If we just, just chill, don't worry about it. When, when your situation comes up, whatever one situation you actually encounter, God will give you what you need to handle that. You don't have to worry about 72 different situations in advance and drain your emotional energy. He says, I've given you the energy to handle what will happen, and you wasted all that energy on a bunch of stuff that isn't even going to happen. Last symptom of there is a com uh, compulsion to find blame in every situation. God's perspective. This is what it says in 1 Corinthians 4, 3 through 5, it says, It matters very little to me what you think of me, even less where I rank in popular opinion. I don't even rank myself. Comparison in these matters are pointless. The master makes that judgment. So don't go get ahead of the master and jump to conclusions with your own judgments before all the evidence is even in. When he comes, he will bring out tin the open place and place in evidence all kinds of things that we never even dreamed of, inner motives and purposes and prayers, only then will any one of us get to hear, well done, of God. The Passion Translation says it this way. It says, but personally, I'm not the least bit concerned if I'm judged by you or any verdict I receive from any human court. In fact, I don't even assume to be my own judge, even though... My conscience is clear, but that doesn't mean that I stand acquitted before the Lord, 
for the only judge I care about is him. So resist the temptation to pronounce premature judgment on anything before the appointed time when all will be fully revealed. Instead, wait until the Lord makes his appearance, for he will bring all that is hidden in the darkness to light and unveil every secret motive of everyone's heart. Then, when the whole truth is known, each will receive praise from God. Man, we are wasting our time when we're trying to make judgments based on what little we have. Well, it looks like maybe they did that because of, maybe, maybe that's why they did it. Oh, if that's why they did it, well, that's really bad. We don't know if that's what they were thinking. Well, God knows what he's thinking. And he says, I'll take care of it when the time comes. Don't waste your time and energy doing it. And don't waste your time and energy wondering about how their judgment is about you. Do they know what I'm really thinking? I mean, do they think that, do they understand how pure my motives are? Or do they think that I did that for this other reason? He says, just let it go. Philippians 4.8, finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are good, report. If there is any virtue, if there be anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Let's see where I'm at. Last one, control. In order to validate our own worth, we feel as though we need to take charge and protect our interests and monopolize situations. We have the story in Genesis 16 of Sarah, who God promised, along with her husband, would have children and their descendants would be blessed. But she was not having kids. And she was so frustrated that she did all kinds of, how many of you guys remember, all the lengths that she went to to try to manipulate the situation and get God's blessing on their kids. And he, she, she put in her, her, one of her, her uh, maidens and basically told her husband to sleep with one of the servants. And maybe if you have a kid through, through her, then this will count for mine and I'll adopt it. And then all of it just totally messed up. She felt God was inattentive and absent. She even thought he was against her. Her circumstances determined her understanding of God's character. She thought because of what the circumstance looked like in that snapshot of a moment that she knew what God was thinking towards her. How many recognize she was wrong? The situation for many, many years looked perhaps like God didn't care. But did God care? Yes, he did. She viewed life as scarce rather than abundant. She became self-seeking and manipulative of others. She felt intimidated and dealt with others with intimidation. She resented success of others and even turned on them in anger. She felt as if someone's success else was successful, then someone else had to lose. And she blamed others. What is God's perspective? Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the thoughts I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace, not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me, and I will listen to you, and I, you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all of your heart. It is, it is God's desire that you and I are secure in who we are and what God has called us to do. I want to close with an example of, of a leader who was secure. How many of you guys ever heard of Margaret Thatcher? She was prime minister of England, voted in three times in a row, which had not happened in like 100 years. There's a true story of a time when she was invited to the White House and was there with Ronald Reagan, and there were world leaders there, and the Prime Minister, um, Pierre Trudeau from Canada, was there, and apparently he just lit into her, insulted her, told her she was wrong, couldn't be right, just very, very critical and attacking. And Reagan shares that afterwards, he went to her and he said, I'm sorry about that. He, he was out of line. He shouldn't have done that. She responded, as a woman, sometimes you have to know when a man is just being childish. 
She said of consensus, she said, to me, consensus seems to be the process of abandoning all beliefs, principles, values, and policies in search of something in which no one believes. She was elected three times to the prime minister, but at moments during her reign, or it's not a reign, but her tenure, that's the word I'm looking for, she was said to be the least popular woman in Britain because she stood. The nickname they gave her was the Iron Lady. She did not compromise. She stood for what she believed. She didn't allow other people's criticism to change how she viewed herself. In that story with Ronald Reagan, she just sat, listened, as the Prime Minister of Canada just insulted her, and when it was done, she just walked away. Didn't even argue with him. It impressed Ronald Reagan so much, and the world who later heard about it. I just give that as an example of what it looks like when we're just confident in who we are. God says you are his special possession. Say that with me. I am God's special possession. And he has a purpose for you. It does not matter what else is going on. Man, I pray that you become enthralled, delighting in God and his purpose and his view of who you are. Dear Heavenly Father, we just pray your blessing on each and every one of the people that are here today, Lord, and listening online, I ask that you would touch our hearts, that you would inspire us to value your perspective more than our own, more than those of others, to stop comparing and competing and to to rest in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Adrian.